Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. What do Reformed Christians mean today when we refer to limited atonement or particular redemption? Is it the same idea that has prevailed in the Reformed tradition historically and confessionally? Are there different Reformed ways of understanding and affirming the truth that God in Christ saves his people by his obedience and sacrifice? Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome you today to episode number 49 of Greystone Conversations. It's always difficult to discover that what we first learn about something doesn't quite fit the reality of the thing on closer inspection. The difficulty, though, is often less theological and intellectual than emotional and psychological. This is true for many Reformed Christians who converted to the Reformed tradition of faith and worship by way of the many influential popular presentations of Reformed theology, often connected in some way with popular conferences and personalities. It can be jarring to discover then, as some do eventually, that the so-called five points of Calvinism are, for example, not really a summary of the Reformed theology of anything, including salvation, and were never intended to be. It can also prove eye-opening to learn that most of the key distinctives of the Reformed theological tradition aren't even unique to the Reformed tradition at all, but reach far back into the deep Christian tradition shared by other Christians, of which the Reformed fathers in the faith wanted to be seen as but one and the most faithful expression. But learning the real history and theology of the Reformed tradition is important, not only to represent it correctly in conversations and in preaching, but also to ensure that our quest to advance and to build on the Reformed theological tradition is in fact advancing and building on something that really does exist. The nature and purpose of the atonement is one doctrine that has enjoyed a close re-examination in recent years in terms of the actual texts, events, and figures of the critically important 16th and 17th century periods of rapid theological development and of confessionalization. This has included the reconsideration of the often misunderstood language of limited atonement, and the also often misunderstood or mischaracterized teaching of a remarkably capable yet seldom examined Reformed theologian named John Davenant, the famous Bishop of Salisbury and prodigious British scholar. Dr. Michael Lynch knows Davenant's teaching on the atonement very well and has just published a full-length monograph on the topic with Oxford University Press called John Davenant's Hypothetical Universalism, 
a defense of Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy. Whatever your own view of the matter, if you thought John Owen's teaching on the Atonement was or is the only Reformed way of saying things, or if you thought Peter Lombard was a medieval hair-splitter with no relevance to contemporary theology on the person and work of Christ, or if you thought the diversity of the Reformed tradition was a problem remedied by the confessions, you'll appreciate what you learn in Dr. Lynch's book, and also perhaps find my conversation with him in this episode quite interesting. Now please remember too, if you would, that we are in the midst of a major push for support here at Greystone as we seek to take the next steps in our development and to fund our ongoing operations for the coming days. Your gift at our website, greystoneinstitute.org, however small or great, really is a terrific help to that end. Well, thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now, Dr. Michael Lynch and I talk about John Davenant, hypothetical universalism, and the unity with diversity of the confessional reform theological and churchly tradition as episode number 49 of Greystone Conversations. Thank you very much, Dr. Lynch, for joining us today for Greystone Conversations. It really is a pleasure to welcome you today. I've been looking forward to this uh, opportunity uh, actually for quite some time and was thankful that in God's providence, uh, it suddenly became a possibility to do it now. And on the very happy occasion of the release of your new monograph with Oxford University Press called John Davenant's Hypothetical Universalism, a defense of Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy. Now, our listeners will note the obvious interest anyone at Greystone is going to have with a book with that subtitle, A Defense of Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy. But in fact, my personal interest in your work goes back some time, and I have benefited a great deal from your research on the atonement, on Christology-related matters, and the development of the Reformed tradition. So it's a, it's a pleasure to welcome you today. Thank you very much, Dr. Lynch, for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you. If you don't mind, would you maybe tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you're doing, where are you doing it as we speak today? Yeah, I currently live in Delaware and I teach at a classical school. I teach Latin, Greek, and rhetoric currently at that classical school here in Delaware. I also teach for the Davenant Institute. I have an upcoming course that I'm teaching on predestination and reprobation in the early modern period. I did my uh, PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary. I was fortunate enough to study with Dr. Muller, but he retired by the time that dissertation writing came around. And so I had the pleasure of having Lyle Bierma as my advisor, and he did a really great job and uh, advised me well throughout that process. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned an upcoming course with Davenant, mm -hmm. and why don't we pause just to take a, a second or two to talk about what you'll be doing in that mm -hmm. upcoming module so we can make sure the word gets out for <laughs> yeah. those who might be interested. What will you be doing in that module? Yeah, I'm largely looking at how early modern Western theology approached the question of predestination reprobation. So I'm going to be looking at four traditions, four, five, maybe. Anyways, Lutheran, Reformed, Roman Catholic, and Arminian Remonstrant. 
And then I'm bringing in, in the first class, I'll be, we'll be looking at Thomas, just to kind of set a, everyone kind of uses Thomas's lingo and is kind of riffing off of him in some way or another. They either like some of the things he says, and he asks all the main questions related to the doctrine. So that's what we're doing. Unfortunately, I think it's too late to sign up, although if you probably pay Brad Little John enough, he'll probably let you in uh, last minute. So, But that's beyond my pay grade. I don't have any control over that. So anyways. All right. Very good. Now, I, I guess I should mention then to our listeners that if you are interested in signing up for this and want to make Dr. Littlejohn an offer he can't refuse to get into this uh, class list, you should probably make that effort as soon as humanly possible. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're having this conversation with a view to the episode, Greystone Conversations episode release of the week of June 28th. So it would come out on June 30th or so. That is probably the very latest possible so maybe contact Greystone at info at greystoneinstitute.org if you want us to help you make that case to Davenant to get into Dr. Lynch's uh, micro course. Yeah. So uh, that would be a great idea if you're, if you're up, for, uh, up for an opportunity to learn directly from Dr. Lynch. Well, as far as that subject matter is concerned, which you've uh, given us a bit of, a, of an insight into how you're going to carry this out for the purposes of your, of your Davenant module, this is also materially relevant to your monograph. And I'd be very grateful if you would kind of give us the backstory to this book. I don't only mean, although I do mean your personal interest Mm. in the topic, but what has brought us here in terms of the scholarship Mm. that makes your monograph possible, gives it the form, the shape it does as well. Mm. In what way have the questions been refined over the years. But we do indeed want to hear of your personal interest in the topic and how you came to write the book. Sure. I did my undergraduate work at the Moody Bible Institute, and I I did historical theology. So I had heard of Muller's work as an undergraduate and had followed it. In fact, I got the four volumes for, I think, $7 a volume. Uh, Oh, wow. That's criminal. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was like in an over clearance bin or something like that. Uh, Actually, I traded with a buddy. I got something else. He got those. And then I uh, said, hey, I'd much prefer those than what I got. We did a deal. Anyways. And for our audience, Dr. Lynch is referring to the four volume work by Richard Muller. Yeah. Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. Right. Easily among the most important and helpful resources for understanding the development of the Reformed theological and confessional tradition after the Reformation, Uh, but very, very hard to find for anything short of a mortgage these days. Yeah, I could could sell mine, but the first volume's annotated pretty heavily. So anyways, I want my own annotations. I I wouldn't sell it anyways, unless a new edition came out, then I might. Anyways, (laughs) all right, well, so I was interested in historical theology, and I was already in a Reformed church. I've been OPC since the last few years that I was at the Moody Bible Institute. Then I got to RTS, and there was a librarian there who was very much interested in the diversity of the Reformed tradition, especially on the question of the extent of the atonement. And I worked at the library there at RTS in Jackson, and we just started chatting and He started noting resources to me, and I started reading this material and realizing that 
the kind of standard narrative of with regard to the diversity of the Reformed tradition, but especially about the extent of the atonement and how people were reading Dort, there were either missing pieces or misinterpretations, you know, some of both. And so I realized as, as my time went on at RTS that this probably would make a really great dissertation topic. And then I realized, well, and then from heaven, he came and sought her came out. And I don't, I don't want to be too tough. I, I know at least one of the editors and I know plenty of people that wrote in it. And I, I wrote an essay against one of the essays in there. And so you can go find all that stuff. But I, I realized that Davenant was being treated really poorly. And you mean John Davenant himself? Yeah, Davenant himself. Yes, not the Davenant Institute. Right. Uh, but yeah, John Davenant was being really not interpreted well as kind of a whipping boy. I remember coming across a Modern Reformation. It was like a, this little blurb in Modern Reformation magazine, whom I write for now, I, I think is great. But there was this blurb on Amy Roldianism. And then the author of this blurb, it was like a quick explanation of Amy Roldianism, said that John Davenant's version of Amy Roldianism was not very sophisticated. And I don't think I had read at RTS a more difficult treatise to really grasp than Davenant's treatise on the death of Christ. Like, there was nothing. I mean, Turretin is easier. Everyone is easier. Bavink is easier. Everyone is easier in some ways to getting an understanding of Davenant. And so I, I just thought I knew no one had really done focused work on Davenant in his uh, dissertation. It was in English at the time. I was learning Latin, and so I knew I could kind of get away with not being super good with my Latin at the time. I mean, I've gotten a lot better since then, but at the time I, I was not. And that's how it came about. It was kind of this caricature of Davenant and hypothetical universalism and Amy Roldianism, coupled with the fact that I knew that he'd make a good dissertation. And who are the, the main or the best scholarly conversation partners for dealing with Davenant himself or the topic generally from that period? Yeah, there are not a lot of modern interlocutors that really treat of Davenant, take Davenant very seriously. And that's just because I, I just don't think he was well known and has been, he hasn't been particularly well known. His treatise was is difficult to get your hands on. So in the early modern period, it was published twice, once 600 copies, 1650, I have one behind me. One of the 600 copies, we know this because someone writing to Baxter says that there were only 600 uh, copies printed. So, so we know that, that it was just very limited to begin with. It was republished in uh, 1683, but I've never seen a copy of that sold or purchased. I, I don't know anyone that has that. And then it was, it was translated in the 19th century. But again, before Google Books and these sorts of things, it was just difficult to get your hands on this material. And so I just don't think people had access to Davenant's treatise. Even if they knew about it, wanted to read it, they'd have to go places to find it. And it's not particularly easy to find. I think that that's, that's one thing. The best interlocutor that I found, the person that seems to understand hypothetical universalism best, at least in the semi-modern period, is William Cunningham. 
I think William Cunningham understands Davenant pretty well. There are some early modern guys that deal a little bit with Davenant, although I, I could go on and on about why it is that you don't have a lot of early modern interaction with Davenant's treatise, negative interaction, partly because by the time that it's published, so 1650, the Calvinism, anti-Calvinism, like war that's going on in England becomes a orthodox versus Sassanian anti-orthodoxy sort of thing. I just don't think by the time that it's published, people are as interested had it been published in like 1620, right after the Senate adored, or even right before then. Had it been published then, I am convinced it would have created a great amount of controversy. <laughs> but because it's published in 1650, I just think that people moved on. Davenant was dead by then as well, and you know, you don't like to have an interlocutor that's dead necessarily. So there's all sorts of reasons, but Samuel Rutherford goes after it a little bit in his book on the covenant of life opened, I think uh, it is, where he goes after Davenant a little bit, but only we're only talking like a page or two. And then Owen, somewhat famously, well, it's famous to me. It's not famous to most people, I don't think. But anyways, uh, in his treatise on the death of Christ, uh, it's not, or the death of Christ, it's not the death of death and the death of Christ, not that book. Another book that he wrote against Richard Baxter, a year after he wrote the death of death, he, in the preface, has a few paragraphs where he goes after Davenant a little bit. He admits in that paragraph that Davenant sounds like Augustine, Prosper, and Fulgentius, who are, for those that don't know, they are the Augustinians of Augustinians in the Augustinian period. He says, I admit that Davenant sounds like those guys, but that he sounds like scripture or that it's free from contradiction, logical contradiction, and these sorts of things, he says, I'm not convinced by it all. And then he he just he just can't make sense of it and d- doesn't like it. And so, anyways, those are the only, those are some of the best interlocutors, but to be quite honest, most of the interlocutors either misunderstand him willfully or otherwise, I don't know that, but they just, I, I, I don't think they understand what he's saying very well. That's helpful. Could you walk us through in a way that would give us a sense of the, the larger picture that's involved in asking what might appear to be very specific and narrow questions. Could you kind of walk us through in what way in your book you develop an appreciation not only of Davenant's own importance in the historical but ongoing discussion of the atonement, but also the relationship of his proposal to the reformed confessional tradition generally. In your work, you're focused quite a bit on the question of the place or lack thereof of a Davenant model, Davenant understanding of the atonement within confessional reformed Christianity. Could you kind of walk us through how that works, maybe even with a view to what the specific question that is being raised and explored in your monograph? Yeah, so I have two big pictures that I want to paint. One is I want to set Davenant in the trajectory of Augustinian medieval into the kind of pan-Protestant Roman Catholic tradition that he just would have been a part of, right? Because both Roman Catholics and Protestants are trying to make sense of the tradition that they've been bequeathed 
which is the medieval scholastic tradition, and then all the way into the early church, uh, all the way back to the early church, and in the middle period, kind of the Augustinian tradition. Again, with the names of like Augustine, Prosper, and Fulgentius. Right? Okay, so I, I try to do that. And that lineage is largely tracing how what we call the Lombardian formula, which is kind of pithily expressed by saying that Christ died for all sufficiently, but Christ also died for the elect alone efficaciously. So I I tie him to that. But when it comes to the Reformed tradition in particular, which is the other picture I want to represent, I just note the fact that by the time he's, when he's writing, there is no Owen. There is no Amiroldian controversy, really. Uh, at least by the time that his De Morta Christi is finished. By the time that it's published, there was, but he's dead. He was dead nine years previous to when it was actually published. So I want to say that his tradition is, well, he's an Anglican. And so it's the 39 articles. And Article 31 talks about him... I'm going to forget the language off the top of my head, largely because I always get it confused with the uh, Heidelberg Catechism's language as well. But I believe it's Article 31 that talks about him basically dying for the sins of the world or something like that. And then there are other documents, uh, kind of uh, Anglican documents, like in the Book of Common Prayer and other sorts of things that speak in the same sort of way. So he feels, as an Anglican, bound to talk in the way that those reformed confessions because they were reformed they were they came out of the anglican reformation the, the the church of england reformation he's bound to that language and he feels like he needs to defend that language against those who want to say you cannot say it in that way so that that's the first thing hmm. the other bit about it is that he feels like all of the earlier reformed guys so uh, he includes Melanchthon, Calvin, Bootser, Vermigli, Zonkey, Musculus. He thinks that they all speak in the way that he's trying to defend. <laughs> so he would think it was insane that one would deem his way of saying things unreformed. However, I do think he's realizing by the time that he writes the book, that there's a new trajectory. He never blames it on Beza, but it would definitely be blamable to Beza, probably, of a tradition. Piscator would be the one he, he does name. Piscator Beza, who start a tradition in the Reformed, a kind of lineage of Reformed theology that wants to say that Christ only died for the elect and denies unequivocally that he died for the non-elect in any way. And that's very helpful, but it also raises the question with which I probably should have began our conversation, but this is a great time for it. And it has to do with the vocabulary, the term in your main title, and that is the terminology of hypothetical universalism. What exactly was Davenant teaching? What do we mean by the term hypothetical universalism? And in what way has your research uncovered or pointed out myths over against realities 
when it comes to hypothetical universalism in relationship, especially to Dort and what we mean by the Reformed symbolic tradition. So what did Davenant teach? What do we mean by this vocabulary? Okay, so hypothetical universalism is English. Had you asked Davenant, are you a hypothetical universalist or what do you think about hypothetical universalism? He would have said, what? He would have had no idea what you were talking about. That is not a term that he would have been familiar with. The term, as far as uh, historians can tell, comes from the Amy Roldian controversy that begins in the 30s. I think the first time we see the term, like those hypothetical ones, it's uh, lace. You don't want me doing French, but it's it's, it's French in a letter. Uh, I think it's with Andre Reve. It's with some of the some of the guys in France who are going after the Amy Roldians. And by the way, when I use the term Amy Roldian, I mean those French Amy Roldians that are tied to the the academy at Saumur in France. Their lineage actually comes from Cameron, who was a Scottish minister who came and taught at Saumur in the 20s. Anyways, and then those guys started teaching what's called Amy Roldianism. Anyways, so the term is a French term that kind of arises in the 40s, if I'm not mistaken. I, it could be in the late 30s, but I'll go with the 40s for now, 1640s. Davenant would have never heard about it. It was a term of derision against the Amy Roldians. Now, when historians nowadays use the term hypothetical universalism, what they mean by that, generally speaking, although they don't always define it very clearly, is the belief, and this is the way I use it in my book, is at the at kind of bottom... I use the term hypothetical universalism, even though I don't like the term, even though I'd never use it unless it was already just kind of like a guild term, is the belief that Christ died for all people in such a way that all could believe and therefore be saved. That's it. Now, if I were to parse out that definition, Davenant would have all sorts of concerns about ambiguity in various parts particularly that he died in such a way that all could believe. He wouldn't like that, but he would say Christ died for all in such a way that all could be saved by believing. Yes, he would like that sort of way of saying it better. That's what we mean. Davenant's own position is that Christ was a universal cause of salvation. The Father ordained the Son to make a sacrifice on behalf of all men such that if all believed, all could be saved. That's it. He also, in tandem with all the Reformed, this is where all the Reformed agreed, he also believed that Christ died for the elect. The Father sent the Son on behalf of the elect to die for them in particular to merit all these saving graces such that they would actually believe and actually come to saving faith and that they would persevere to the end. So there's there's two ends in the death of Christ. One has a universal end to provide a universal remedy. Then there's another end of the death of Christ to actually save them. And those ends are both there. Hmm. That's very, very helpful. Could you now help us one step further. There is a very conspicuous, very familiar, and now somewhat longstanding, at least multi-generational, perception of 
the Reformed tradition, what we mean by Reformed, that is largely synonymous with a certain version of what's called the five points, the five points of, yeah. of Calvinism, Tulip, and so on. Yeah. Ostensibly related to Dort uh, itself needs to be uh, very, very carefully explained. Yeah. Would you help us distinguish what conventionally, perhaps in general evangelicalism, perhaps, what conventionally goes by the name of limited atonement? Yeah. Would you help us relate yeah. that in its conventional form to what's really going on in Davidin's teaching and in the context he's working in? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about Davidin and then Dort relative to how it's usually talked about. The L in Tulip is typically defined as something like Christ only died for the elect. He only made a satisfaction for the sins of the elect. Is usually how it's defined. It's a very Owenian way of putting it. It's fine. I don't mind, as long as it's defined that way, we all know what you're saying, and then we can say whether or not Dort affirms that, denies it, or is ambiguous towards it, or whatever. But, you know, as long as we define it that way, it's fine. So, if defined in that very narrow way that I just defined it, uh, Dort never actually says that, and Davenant disagrees with it. Okay, so I, I said two things there. That Dort doesn't say it. I didn't say it disagreed. I just said it doesn't say it. It doesn't affirm it. And Davenant would disagree with it. Dort affirms. So when I said that Christ died for all sufficiently and Christ died for the elect alone efficaciously, it affirms that latter part. It affirms that there was an intention on the part of God for Christ to die for the elect in a way that he definitely did not die for the non-elect. That's true. What it punts on, partially because Davenant and some of, there were other, quote, hypothetically universalists at door, is on the question of whether or not Christ's satisfaction was for the sins of all men or for the elect alone. It punts on that because some are saying for the elect alone, some are saying for all. <laughs> Uh, so it just punts on that whole question. It punts on the question of whether or not Christ died for all sufficiently and instead affirms that his, the death of Christ is sufficient for all men, which is a different question. And I would just turn, actually, William Cunningham has this great footnote in one of his two books. It's either in historical theology or theology of the reformers. You'll have to go find it. You can find it on my Twitter. I've mentioned it a couple times on Twitter. But Cunningham is this great quote differentiating between those two claims. Every Reformed theologian, pretty much, including those that were saying Christ only died for the elect, he did not die for the non-elect in any sense, affirmed the proposition that the death of Christ is sufficient for the sins of all people. In other words, that it had this infinite value about it. Everyone agreed. Is that a distinction between inherent quality and divine intention or purpose? Yes, exactly. Yes, uh, this is this gets at Davenant's distinction between an internal or mere sufficiency and an ordained sufficiency. So Davenant says that for you to be able to say that Christ died for any particular human being, you cannot simply say that there's an internal value with respect to some gift. There's also must be an intentionality for that gift relative to the person. 
There has to be some intentionality. It can be in a conditional intentionality, is which is exactly what it is for Davin. It's a conditional intentionality. It's a, hey, I will give this gift only if you believe, repent and believe. But I've made the gift for the purpose that if you believe, you can give it. Like it's, there's an actual intentionality for you. But there's something you have to do. Of course, that doing is itself a gift if you're the elect, because that doing is going to be granted on account of the death of Christ having died for you because you're the elect. And therefore, you're going to get regenerated. You're going to get saving faith. You're going to get persevering faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it works for Davenant. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. That's my historian hat. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's great. That's very helpful. What then would you say the relationship is positive or negative between Davidant's model of the atonement and the confessional reform tradition, including including yeah. Dort? Is there a positive yeah. and happy relationship well, well, or is it being excluded? Davenant and the delegation that was sent to Dort by King James. So the British delegation. Yes, yes. the British delegation at Dort. They had a profound influence on that second article. So I trace this whole history. I'm the only one, I'm the first one and the only one who has actually traced the way that the English delegation shaped the language at Dort to make sure that their hypothetical universalism was allowed. And uh, they actually tried to get it in there, actually, at the very beginning. I mentioned this a little bit in my dissertation, but this is more of like, you have to like, entail this but here you go for all the listeners this is it's kind of like an observation that i've had that i i may not have made explicit here when these delegations come to dort it's not clear to me that they knew how different some of their own views were with the other delegates partly because when you're learning the reformed faith as these guys did you were reading standard textbooks that everyone read And oftentimes those textbooks weren't dealing with the debates that had then ensued. And so uh, the plurality that had resulted from ambiguities earlier hadn't been known. When down in the English delegation, they put forward their like hypothetical universals is what they want in at, at Dort for the second main article, main doctrine. I think people were like, no way, no way, man. And, and, and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, no way, man. What, what? There's disagreement. And, and, and that happens. You clearly get this recognition that people are getting perturbed, that other people have differing views on some of this stuff. And so they had to work. They spent a good month just hashing out that article. And there's all sorts of letters that we have of like the Genevan delegation sending back to Geneva all these British delegates. They want it their way or no way at all. And they're, you know, forestalling everything. And we could be getting home a lot sooner if it weren't for the fact that they're being annoying. and Th- Things you never hear today anymore. No. Right? Yeah, ex- exactly. The end result is, is that while Davenant and the English delegation didn't get hypothetical universalism ensconced in the, uh, in the uh, canons of Dort, they definitely made all the room that they wanted uh, for hypothetical universalism. And so they come, come home and they defend, the whole delegation defends the soundness, the compatibility of the canons of Dort to the 39 articles and to the Anglican symbols. 
confessional symbols. Let's assume for our purposes, Owen and Davenant are saying uh, different things because they're coming at the atonement from different perspectives. True. And they come out differently in terms of certain conclusions on how to speak and theologically about the question. But who would they say in their contexts? We both agree we definitely want to protect the Christian faith from that challenge in our time. Let me speak to Owen for a moment. I think young Owen is trying to protect everyone who doesn't agree with his fairly narrow version of Reformed theology. I think later on, Owen, he starts to recognize that if he wants to get rid of the really bad people, the really unorthodox people in England, and, you know, get rid of them and attack them, a Sicinianism, really crazy Arminian Sicinianism, even Roman Catholicism to some degree, and rationalism, right, which is kind of hand in hand with some Sicinianism to some degree, right? I, I think he realizes that he has to start working with people that he doesn't agree John and Tittle with. He works with John Bunyan and so on and so forth, right? Davenant, the people that he particularly wants to distance himself from are the remonstrants for sure. And at least some of the Jesuits. That's a really tricky situation. But with regard to the atonement, with regard to soteriology, justification and these sorts of things, it's Roman Catholics, especially some Jesuits, and the Remonstrants, uh, definitely. He wants to find as much common ground with Lutherans as he can, although it depends with what Lutheran you're talking with in that period. Some of the Lutherans, like Gerhard, I think Davenant would kind of like. And then someone like Andrei, I think he would find a little bit disturbing. And then there's guys like Huber, Samuel Huber, who was kind of like a heterodox Lutheran, whom he found to be repulsive and names him. Although Davident admits that he, he didn't read a lot of Lutheran literature. He was not keeping up with Lutheran literature. He actually admits it to Samuel Ward. He says, I've read some of the older authors, but none of the new guys. Arminians are the people that are doing the truly kind of novel stuff. I just published, uh, you know, in that little... Forstius, right? Uh, Baconus, Martin Baconus, who's this Roman Catholic polemicist against Calvinism and against all things Protestant. He, um, he, he calls Vorstius, Conrad Vorstius, the Calvinist Conrad Vorstius, except Vorstius was, he was nothing like a Calvinist. I mean, he, he hated Calvin's hmm. doctrines. He was a heterodox remonstrant Arminian. Those are the guys that almost every Orthodox Roman Catholic, every Orthodox Lutheran, every Orthodox Reformed, those are the sorts of guys that everyone's going after. And quite appropriately, to my mind, there's the theological hat. Now I'll take that off again. i put on my history <laughs> hat again. Uh, thank you for that helpful backstory to, to a lot of the thinking that we work with in terms of who the heroes of the early Reformed tradition are and how we should locate them in their, in their context. It's always so helpful to get uh, insight into that. One thing that comes to mind as we're reflecting on these sometimes rather complicated theological questions of nuance and perspective. In my experience, when it is assumed that these debates and usually the 
the, the adjective scholastic is used in a pejorative way. Uh, when these debates are going on, they are examples of theological hair splitting and not really related whatsoever to the world of Holy Scripture. And yet in my experience, when you get very close at all to any of these more substantial debates, at least, not that there isn't some of that going on on occasion here or there, but on the whole, there is an unmistakable concern at work in the distinctions, in the nuancing, in the theological explanations to try to do maximal justice to the phenomena of the scriptural witness, to the way scripture Mm -hmm. does speak. Mm -hmm. How much of this debate remained throughout this period driven by what we would regard as exegetical or hermeneutical concerns? How do we understand John's gospel? How do we square it with Paul here or there? How much of this is provoked by particular biblical passages sure. and wrestling with them? Yeah, so Davina is somewhat unique with regard to this question. He undoubtedly, and he says this throughout his Demorta Christi, at one point I think he says, oh, we've been talking about testimonies. We've been talking about like various people and what they have to say about this. But he's like, the only real important question is what the Holy Scriptures have to say about this. And he gets to using Scripture as his argument for a particular thesis in, in Demorta Christi uh, in his On the Death of Christ. But he, he's, he's somewhat unique in that whereas most of the people in this period – solely emphasize the question of biblical fidelity. And you can hear this in Owen's response to Davenant's treatise, you know, well, you know, yeah, you kind of sound like Augustine and Prosper and Fulgentius, but I don't think you sound like scripture, right? Okay. Davenant is almost equally concerned. I will not say equally concerned because he is not, but he is almost equally concerned. And this is part of his own vow as a Church of England man, preacher, to uphold not just what Scripture says, but what the early church and the Augustinian tradition said. Like, this is actually in their vows of preachers. Hmm. 1571, maybe. It's like on these 1571 canons for preachers that all preachers had to, like, vow to, that they would uphold not just Holy Scripture, the teaching of Holy Scripture, but the teaching of the early church. And that's a that's a unique vow. I mean, you don't. Owen's not making that vow, right. no, nor are people on the continent, by and large, making that vow. And so, I just think that that's worthy of noting. But yes, Davenant does a ton of exegesis. He not only does a ton of exegesis in his De Morta Christi. Every thesis gets arguments, syllogistic arguments, built on scripture for whatever point he's trying to make. But he also, he wrote one of the best, if not the best early modern commentary on Colossians. This is like universally admitted, even in the period. Maybe not by Roman Catholics, but by all the Protestants that wrote about the best commentaries of the period. Colossians is the best. In fact, I believe it is Charles Bridges. I think Bridges says that apart from Owen's commentary on Hebrews, Davenant's Colossians commentary is the best commentary ever written on Scripture. Right? And so... He was steeped in scripture. That's extremely important. He says, Davenant says in his Demorta Christi, and obviously this won't be surprising to those that have been in debates about the extent of the atonement, but he says a careful and correct exposition of John 3, 16, 17, and 18 makes my whole case. 
If you understand how I read that passage, you will have agreed with everything that I'm trying to say relative, at least to the sufficiency side of things. Yeah. It's very helpful to be reminded that they are not only committed to the work of exegesis and scriptural reading, uh, they are exemplary uh, in that commitment in ways that go beyond what certainly we would call uh, the norm today, at least in their, the uh, diligence and the closeness and care of their, of their handling of scripture. Let me ask you one last question, Dr. Lynch, before I let you go for today. Where do you think ongoing work should go in the areas opened up by your study? I think there's plenty of dissertation work still to be done. There was a whole distinct German reformed group of hypothetical universalists that have been, well, I'll say this. They may have been discussed in German literature, which I haven't read a lot of, but not in English. There's just hardly anything. And there was a whole tradition that arose side by side to Davenant defending kind of the Davenantian way of thinking things, but is independent of Davenant and is independent of Samur. And no one has done that in English. I'm talking a ton of theologians, like whole faculties at universities in Germany. So that's one. I think we could still use a more careful explanation of the contours of the various theologians at Summer on the death of Christ. I know Roger Nicole did his dissertation on it. I know we have a few other kind of essays here and there on that, but it's still worth doing. And Roger Nicole is a fantastic French theologian. His Latin was apparently pretty good, but given what material we can now read as opposed to what he could get his hands on and these sorts of things, I think there's just a lot more literature that you could read and go through. Um, So I still think that. And then finally, I'm still very interested in uh, some of these English hypothetical universalists that you get defending hypothetical universalism at Westminster. Undoubtedly, most most people have went through all these guys' works, but there's probably letters, other correspondence. The thing is, is that, and I've heard this from multiple historians, most studies in history do not look at correspondence. They do not look at unpublished manuscripts, the sort of thing that I did just a little bit in for my dissertation. And the the amount of information that you can learn from that stuff is unbelievable. But most people are, well, I think back in the day, it wasn't laziness. It was inability to get your hands on it. Today, I would argue more on the laziness side of things. People are just lazy and they don't want to go do it. They don't want to read the, the manuscripts because they're difficult to read and so on and so forth. But I, I just think there's tons of literature out there still to read. Right before my dissertation was published, I only just got a transcription that a historian that I knew had seen a letter that was written between that Twist wrote to Davenant where he talks about the death of Christ and these sorts of things. I had just got it's not never been published. Only one person I've ever seen cite it. He's the historian I mentioned. He had went to uh, Cambridge or Oxford or wherever it was held, and he hand transcribed it himself after seeing it, right? He gave, he made it, and then sent it to me, and I had to read that guy's handwriting, which was you know, not the most readable thing in the world. And then I transcribed it. Uh, I, I typed it up. So now I have it. And uh, there's just so much literature like that. 
I get a sense of what Twist is doing in 1632 that I just don't think no one knows. Mm. And I like, except for me, because I read the letter or, you know, the other historian that had actually seen it. So there's tons of work to be done, tons of work in these manuscripts and these sorts of things that float around. Well, thank you very much for that, Dr. Lynch. Are there ways that uh, maybe some of our listeners could contact you if they wanted to ask mm-hmm. any questions about your work or ongoing research that could be done as they're perhaps entering into a research context and have the opportunity to do that? Yeah, they can always find an email for me, which is out there, you know, but I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, at Reform Texan. It's pretty easy to remember. I'm a Texan and I'm Reformed. At Reform Texan, I'm on there quite often, ranting and raving and probably too much, regretting occasionally. So, yeah, there you go. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you again for your thoughtful work on these complicated but important questions of the Reformed tradition, of the Christian tradition as a whole, um, as they help us faithfully articulate, commend, defend uh, the gospel, the Christian faith, and instruct one another in that faith, encourage one another in it, as well as proclaim it faithfully to the world. Thank you again, Dr. Lynch, for your work. Once again, his monograph is called John Davenant's Hypothetical Universalism, subtitled A Defense of Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy, published just this month in June of 2021 by Oxford University Press in their excellent Studies in Historical uh, Theology series, formerly edited by the late Heiko Oberman and edited these days by Richard Muller. And so Dr. Lynch's work finds itself in a very eminent series, uh, routinely worth our attention. Thank you again, Dr. Lynch. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. We look forward to next time at Greystone Conversations. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone.